from the Persinium Podcast, the podcast about filmmaking and movie watching. From the Persinia Film Society, this is Tim. This is Dustin. And we have a special guest with us today, filmmaker, writer, director, actor. It's me, Henrik Kudo, everybody. <laughs> who is, uh, you're Dayton-based, is that correct? Dayton, That's Ohio? That's correct, yep. Is all your work in Dayton? Um, the majority, the vast majority of it. We recently expanded a little bit. I, I recently became a partner with a filmmaker named John Oak Dalton in Indiana. We formed the Midwest Film Venture, and we do projects in Dayton and also in Indiana together. And just wrapped producing one of the films in the Babysitter Massacre franchise in upstate New York. So occasionally we go out of, uh, of the area, but for the most part, the films are shot here. Out of my 16 films as director, I think... Two of them were shot, not in Ohio. So as I talked about, you are, according to your IMDb page, <laughs> which is quite full of things. <laughs> it's, it's a very busy page. You are writer, director, actor. What else do you do besides those general tasks? Uh, do well? Uh, <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, being an actor is really all about being uh, affordable and available. Uh <laughs> <laughs> For me, anyway. And the IMDb is kind of funny because, like, you end up with a ton of acting credits because you wake up one day and realize, like, you know, I guess, like, 40 or 50 times a friend of mine has been like, hey, can you do this? And I'm like, uh, when is it? Sunday? Sure. You know? <laughs> and then all of a yep. sudden you have, like, 50 acting credits or whatever it is. For the most part, my career is focused on directing, producing, writing, and occasionally acting. So how did you get into this field? Oh, goodness. How I mean, did you, how, how did you discover this is what you want to do with your life? Oh, man. Well, you know, it, it all goes back to um, an obsessive nature. That's the biggest thing. I, I've realized in hindsight what an obsessive child I was. The, the, the fact that, you know, <laughs> if I liked something, then I went all in immediately. You know, if uh, I mean, like, it, it goes back as crazy as, like, when I liked Star Trek. I started wearing a Star Trek uniform to school. I'm, I'm dead serious. In, in, in fifth grade, I would wear a Starfleet uniform to school, which you know made me very popular. <laughs> let me tell you, we've all been there. Yeah. <laughs> but I, but I mean, like it was just like, duh. I'm gonna like if I love Star Trek, I gotta wear the uniform. And then like when I got really into pro wrestling, uh, you know, I, I would wear uh, uh, knee pads and like and and tape on my wrists. I'm serious. It's just the way I've always been. And and one of the things I'd always, always, always loved was movies. I grew up with, uh, you, this is going to be shocking after what I just revealed, but not a whole lot of friends. Uh, movies were always a source of entertainment and of companionship, for lack of a better term. You know, uh, going to the rental store and coming home with a stack of tapes. I grew up mostly just my mother and I. Occasionally, my older sister was living with us, who she was a great influence because she would have, you know, VHS tapes I should not watch because she was like nine years older than me. That's where I <laughs> first saw like Nightmare on Elm Street and, and all that because she had the tapes. But like for the most part, it would just be my mother and I. My mother was working multiple jobs, going to school, you know, making ends meet. So there were a lot of evenings, especially as I got older, where it was just like, you know, I'd get that that phone call at, you know, at like six o'clock and my mother would be like, I've stopped by the blockbuster on the way home. I see, you know, like here are the two titles I, that sound like you would like them. And, and half the time she was dead on. She would, I remember one time she called me and she was just like, 
why do I know the name George Romero? And I was like, what? And she was like, there's a movie called Bruiser. It says by George Romero. And I was like, grab that. Yes. I want to watch that tonight. Like she would always remember just enough. And she liked movies. She was a little bit of a movie buff. Like, like when the night, when a new nightmare, nightmare on Elm street movie came mm-hmm. out, she rented it for her, but I was already into Freddie and I'm like nine, uh, you know, but my mother was always, was whenever people would be like, you let your son watch that stuff. I, she would always be like, he knows the difference between, between fantasy and reality. That was totally not accurate yet. I was way too young to be watching You were just I wearing was, a Star Trek shirt. I was terrified. I was constantly terrified. I was constantly like, checking behind the shower curtain and stuff in the bathroom. But that, you know, that went on and on. And as I got older and uh, and my mother started to, you know, be able to have a social life and have a life beyond just raising me, then the videos became even more important because it was like, you know, on a Friday night, my mom could go out and just leave me with a pizza and a couple of videos, you know, and she could go and have the, you know, cause she'd made a lot of sacrifices for me. That was my like way of giving back was that Friday nights I had two tapes and a pizza and you know, the, the world was my oyster. I became obsessed with wanting to see every tape in the horror section. And then I got, you know, it got to a point where I was like, mom, I want to go to the Hollywood video. And mom would be like, but that place is skanky. I don't want to go to the Hollywood video. <laughs> and I'd be like, well, how am I going to get to the Hollywood video? Cause I want to go to the Hollywood video. And then I'd get to the Hollywood video and I'd be like, holy crap. Cause it used to be a movie gallery. So it had like these tapes that were just wicked old that Blockbuster would not keep for that long. You know, I mean, Blockbuster would keep like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Evil Dead, they'd keep those forever, but they wouldn't keep, you know, Madman and Evil Ed and and stuff like that, but the but the Hollywood video had an entire section of VHS even though the DVDs were were climbing in. They had these bizarre horror options. So then I started making my way through that. That's where I first discovered the double tape of Dawn of the Dead that had the extended cut and the theatrical cut <laughs> and a bunch of trailers for like all the international versions mm-hmm. and stuff. And I would rent that thing every other week until it finally came out on DVD. They started uh, doing that. Yeah. Uh, right at the tail end of VHS because they were keeping up with DVD, I remember. And they would have that second tape that would have bonus footage. Yeah. Because the VHS originally didn't have you just had the movie, but then the DVD started coming out with all this stuff and they had I think they were even competing with Laserdisc uh-huh. a little bit on that too. Yeah. It was it was awesome. I, I mean I remember that double tape. I would always think like because they had a single tape there of it too and I didn't laugh at that. Was if, like, there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. if there's a double tape you would never I gotta, I gotta, go for the single tape. No way. That single <laughs> tape had like the lame HBO films you know VHS oh, release yeah, of it yeah. too. I was like it's a, no I want that one. That one's dripping with Romero. <laughs> that was you know my obsession uh, began there. Well then uh, one day this is magical memory. One day I'm sitting in my living room and I'm flipping through cha- channels on a Monday night and I come across in, in South Dayton, Channel 23, which was uh, CATV, the Community Access Television Channel. And there is this live improv show called Opening Night Theater Playing. And I watch it because it, you know, it's live. You can call in and offer suggestions <laughs> and things like that. So I call in and I offer a suggestion on like an improv skit. And I'm like, oh, my God, I got to like call in and they answered the thing. And, <laughs> and it was hosted by uh, the late Dayton filmmaker Andrew Cobb. And I didn't heard of him at that point, but that's who it was. And, you know, in between segments, they had to play something. There are no commercials on Community Access, so what do they play? PSAs. And what are one of the PSAs? Do you want to have your own show on CATV? Uh, call this number to find out how. 
So I called that number the next day during <laughs> business hours, and I asked flat out, like I was, I was 12, 12 years old. Uh, I asked, is there an age requirement? And they said no. So I called my mother at work and was like, I, this is what is happening. I'm going to take these classes at the Miami Valley Cable Council. It's like four miles away. How do we make this happen? And my mother was like, how much does it cost? And I, and I was like, 50 bucks. And she was like, how, like every month? And I was like, no, it's just once. And she was like, <laughs> all right. So I was like, ah! So I called and, and, and scheduled my classes. Then it turns out my classes, my instructor was Andy Kopp, the, the filmmaker. And that was really the, the definitely when it became dangerous for me because that was when I started to talk to somebody who was, uh, at that time, he had just wrapped his first feature. And uh, we would talk about movies and talk about making them, talk about watching them. I basically started living there. Because on Saturdays, they were open from, I want to say, 10 to 6 or 7. So my mother would just, on Saturdays, my mother would just drop me off at 10 o'clock. <laughs> no matter what was going because there was always something going on. I was either there to use the edit bay, or somebody was making a show in the studio, and I would go volunteer to get experience, or I was renting the studio to do something. She would just drop me off with, you know, six bucks in my pocket, because, you know, at that point I knew all the employees, and somebody was going to go get lunch, and I could just slide them my money, and they'd bring me back an Arby sandwich or something, and I, you know, so I could survive. <laughs> and my mom would pick me up at six o'clock or seven o'clock and I would just be full of you know piss and vinegar about how excited I was <laughs> so I started cranking out just any kind of tv show I could uh and and the craziest thing was I was making these like little kid shows and they were airing on television I put my the big mistake I put my email address on on them uh man I mean luckily it prepared me for what was going to happen when I had a movie play on television and and people were like hey you should really think about killing yourself and I'm like ah, ah, ah. I was being told that when I was 13 get some new material pal yep. that was that was really the the big the big beginning was uh, was working at uh, in community access, getting to meet people who were making shows, work on their shows, make my own shows. I still to this day I have plastic bins in my garage full of tapes, SVHS tapes, uh, three quarter inch tapes, and mini DV tapes from that early era. And when I turned uh, fifteen or sixteen, I begged my mother to loan me enough money to buy a uh, a Macintosh computer because I had heard from all of the like DVD extras and stuff that m low budget people were making movies on Macintoshes mm -hmm. and they were insanely expensive. Uh -huh. I mean, this is like 2002. So like a Macintosh is like $3,000. Yeah. Apple's still insanely expensive. Uh, they're way cheaper than they were. <laughs> they're cheaper than they oh were. Oh my, are you kidding? I mean, you can get a fully loaded for like $2,100. Used to be base models for $3,400. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So <laughs> for real. I know because I buy Macs all the time. I, I try to get a, a new Mac. Uh, I try to sell my old one and buy a new one every uh -huh. two years or so to stay right on top. Because that's like right where they're worth half what you paid is at the two-year mark. She ends up doing it, but very apprehensively. And I immediately started authoring DVDs. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the what that means exactly. But it basically means creating the programming. You know when you put mm -hmm. a DVD in and it does stuff. It, it, a menu comes up Slide and it has buttons. And and, yeah. yeah, I learned how to do that immediately. And found that other people did not know how to do that and were willing to pay cash mm -hmm. for someone else to do it. So I started, I, I, when I was 15 years old, I authored four movies that went into Blockbuster Video through subcontracts. I, uh, so I was making like, I was making the kind of money my friends that were working at like uh, uh, Meyer were making. 
But you're doing fun stuff. I was doing well. It was well, I w- fun is a stretch, <laughs> but it was it, exciting. It was related stuff. Yeah, it was definitely related. Liar is not fun. I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> so, but my mother was shocked. You know, I was able to. I was making money and the, to pay on the computer and uh, and stuff like that. So then the next thing was, I was like, I need to get some kind of a camera that's not a VHS camera because mm-hmm. up until then, non-linear editing, editing on a computer was a mystery. I mean, when I worked at, uh, at, on TV shows at DATV, I mean, that was deck to deck, two tapes, you know, but we had a control track and everything. It was professionally the way you did it, but it was still that old yeah. way. I, I got like the cheapest mini DV camera and then immediately started dutifully churning out these little backyard movies. It would just be like, get some friends together and in one evening shoot whatever you could. And then I would edit it together over the next week. And then I had something, it could be 10 minutes, it could be 20 minutes, it could be 30 minutes, who knows. And they were all just experiments, but this is where it gets, it gets extra fun. I knew how to author DVDs, so I would take the movies when they were done and I would package them like a real movie. And I, and I had like a friend, like an AOL instant messenger friend who would Photoshop me the DVD sleeves. So I would, and I mean, I, I, I have to say, I mean, we came from pretty humble beginnings. We were very fortunate later in my, in my childhood, we had a lot more to go around. We didn't have so much when I was younger. So I learned early on how to stretch a penny. Mm-hmm. So if you want to hear about stretching a penny, I would buy the DVD media, you know, as cheap as I could on the internet. And this is before Amazon was the place. Oh, yeah. So you had to, I had to go to like supermediastore.com. I had to find uh-huh. a place that specialized in media. Well, then I found out Blockbuster would throw out DVD cases because they replaced DVD cases with their own proprietary ones. So I started dumpster diving DVD cases out of the dumpster at Blockbuster. <laughs> so the DVD cases didn't cost me a penny. And then I would print the sleeves at my mother's work through clandestine means. And I would end up with like a DVD that cost me like 60 cents. And I would sell them at school. I used to carry two trapper keepers, one trapper keeper with, because we weren't allowed to have backpacks because of the the Columbine. Columbine. I would have one trapper keeper full of school stuff and one trapper keeper full of DVDs. And I would try to sell them for any price possible to anyone that would take them. And then I opened a a web store and started (laughs) doing mail orders. So by the time I was 16 years old, I had a mail order business and was making these, these silly movies at one point got in trouble at school because they were like, you're not here to sell things. And that was when I was like, you know, I probably don't belong here. That's going to be my <laughs> next question. Is how long did that last at school? Uh, it lasted until <laughs> I dropped out. So uh, I ended up, I dropped out of high school because I hated everything about it. I just, I just hated everything about it. And one day I just remember thinking like, wait, I have no reason to be here. Everyone, who t- everyone who tells me that if I leave, I will fail or people I don't respect their opinions anyway. I wish it was more exciting. I wish it was like I dropped acid and realized oh, I forget the knives. Nah, I, I like to this day I've never uh, drank <laughs> alcohol, uh, but but I did decide screw this. Um, so Steve jobs your way through life. My my, uh, <laughs> my mother was not thrilled uh, with me dropping out of school. She was very worried. But from there I started doing it more and more and more. Right when I turned eighteen, I got scooped up by a film distributor that saw what I was doing and was like, "Yeah, we need somebody like you." So uh, they hired me into marketing. And from there, I, I uh, right when I was 18, I think it was only three months into being 18, I moved to uh, New Jersey and worked for um, Pop Cinema Camp Motion Pictures uh, in nearly every department. I worked in marketing, I worked in post-production, I worked in uh, sales, and uh, I worked there for a few years, and that was really where I got like an incredible education. And in between those times, I shot my first feature right before then. In fact, like I was trying to sell my first feature right when I was moving there to go to go work there. So that's kind of like, in a nutshell, 
in an incredibly long, but I felt like it was short, uh, way. <laughs> That's kind of how it started. So it, it sounds like what I'm trying to think is you're not just on the creative side. You also are very knowledgeable on the production side, post-production, and the, the business and marketing side as well. Well, and you have to be. You know, um, I was very fortunate because my education almost entirely came from the business side. Um, And that really prepared me for everything that was to come because I had the understanding. I could sit there and be like, you know, I know you're mad about the way your movie came out, but, you know, distributors are going bankrupt every day. It's probably not malice that you're not making any money. It's probably that they're making no money or they made money, but they're bankrupt, so they're never going to pay. So that's a definite, like, a definite element. I don't know why I've, I've always been attracted to, um, to, to selling things and to, uh, to direct sales in particular. Uh, I used to do the, the way I got that job was they saw me at a convention selling these little movies that a teenager had made, but I they had artwork and posters and people would walk up and be like, Hey, excuse me, let me tell you something real quick about this movie. Uh, it was very carny trash. The yeah. moment I, <laughs> the moment I was old enough to talk, I was just total, total utter carny trash. But, you know, unfortunately, there are a lot of filmmakers that that's something that they don't they don't really have or they don't really gravitate towards. They're they're all about the uh, the art and they're not really about getting people to want to watch the movie. And unfortunately, that leaves you in a tough spot because then you're uh, you're completely up to the mercy of whoever uh, is going to market your film. If you're lucky enough to have them market your film in the first place. That's because most like to be like directors wise, you're behind the mm-hmm. camera so that. Like Hitchcock was great at selling his own image yeah. at a certain point, but yeah, oh, yeah, earlier to that, yeah. So it's interesting that yeah, you said being out there and being the per- then you get the personality kind of like Tarantino does too, where yeah, you, you recognize Tarantino, but some directors you couldn't tell what they looked like because they like being behind it, and that's well. And the thing is, if you're going to be a journeyman director, which there's nothing wrong with, uh, you that that means pretty much being strictly a for hire to large companies. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other space, and that's also, in my opinion, not extremely artistic either. So when people complain about having to be a showman or having to be a a, to market their own movies, it's like okay, well, or you can go and just do stuff (laughs) that you have no control over all day long. I guess where it really went crazy was uh, while I was living in New Jersey, I produced and uh, co-directed a movie called Faces of Schlock, which was an anthology with three other filmmakers that I had met through my years traveling and stuff like that. And we made this little professional level uh, micro budget movie. And at that point I had left my job in New Jersey and came back to Ohio, but I had this movie packaged and I realized, you know, I know some stuff and I know some people. So I called my old, my old boss and I was like, I have a movie. You sell movies. You should sell my movie. So (laughs) he deliberated for a while and was like, you know what, let's do it. And I'll never forget. Um, Walking around the uh, sun, the Sun Coast at my Dayton Mall, at the Dayton Mall by me, and my movie was just sitting on the shelf. And I called him and went, "My movie is like in this video store shelf." And he was like, "Oh yeah, it's doing it's doing decent." And I was like, "Ah!" <laughs> and that you know was about when <laughs> when the floodgates started to open. So then I did another movie called Bleeding Through, which was more of kind of an art drama horror movie, and they. They took that one, too, and put it out. It actually, it did really well for being an art drama movie. I had gotten burnt out on making, like, kind of gruesome, silly, horror comedy type movie. So I made this, like, the total opposite of one. But it did all right. So then um, 
I'd gotten pretty frustrated though. At that point, I think I'm like 23. I have three movies under my belt and I'm broke. I'm in debt. Things are, I mean, I'd seen some royalties, but not enough. So I made a movie. This is, this is the actual legitimate turning point of my entire career. I made a movie that was just me basically saying like, I'm probably never going to make another movie. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a movie called Depression the Movie. And it broke every rule I'd ever been shown. It, it was not a particularly marketable concept. It was not a it was not a marketable genre. It was just a depressing comedy. And I literally made a movie about all the things I find sad in life. I was like, I bet I can make it funny. That was like the entire goal. I was like, can I make a movie that's funny, but it's only about the saddest things? So <laughs> I spent about a year putting that movie together while working at like the mall and, and donating plasma and, and, and all that stuff. And when it was done... I I just, like, right when it was about to be done, I had just completed Bleeding Through. Like, it was totally done and and getting ready to sell. So I did a premiere, and the premiere was bizarrely well attended. There were, like, 50 or 60 people there. I was like, what? What? Okay, great. And I I cut a little silly trailer for Depression the Movie at the beginning, and that became, like, everything everyone had to ask. They were just like, when is Depression the Movie? When is Depression the Movie? And I was like, uh, two months? So then I had to rush and get it done in two months. Uh, we held that premiere, and there were more than 100 people there. It was the craziest thing ever. And I decided to release that movie myself, knowing what I knew about the marketplace. When you have a movie that's particularly niche, you really, if the pie is going to be small, you probably should not cut the pie very much. Uh, so instead, I just started selling it myself on DVD. $20 a pop. Everybody who buys it, the $20 goes to me. Simple. We sold 100 in a month, and then we sold 200 in, in two more months. I paid off my credit card debt. <laughs> And was like, okay, maybe this motion picture thing has something to it after all. (laughs) And while that was going on, my old boss called me from Camp Motion Pictures and said, I see you're making this, uh, you know, you made this movie and people seem to like it. When are you going to make something I can sell? (laughs) So we, we made a deal on a movie, a little movie that now has become pretty notorious called Babysitter Massacre. Uh, we, have, we have questions about that one. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Well, uh, just uh, so people know, so Babysitter Massacre, I made that film uh, with distribution already in place from Camp Motion Pictures, uh, which was a big deal because, you know, there are a lot of times when you're making a movie and you don't have a ton of money to work with that you tell people, like, I'm, you know, it's exposure. But I could actually say, like, I have a contract that says this movie's going to be in stores. Mm-hmm. It's going to, you know, it's going to be out there. And it ended up being the last independent movie on the shelves of Blockbuster. It was the last one. It was on. It was in in October, and then they announced the official closure in December. So, so it's your fault the blockbuster went out of business. <laughs> it's funny. You're funny guy. You're funny guy. <laughs> I haven't heard that one before. I think there's bigger problems than that. Too. Well, but um, I, I'll never forget when I got the call from the distributor, and he was like, "So blockbuster ordered your movie," and I'm like, "What?" And he's like, "I waited to tell you because sometimes they order the movie and then they don't actually take it." And I was like, "Okay." And he's like, "But the check cleared," and I was like. <laughs> whoa and he was like yeah this is awesome you should tell everybody and i was like okay so i started telling everybody like it's a it's blockbuster it's gonna be a blockbuster next week and that was like that check off the bucket list at the last possible second it was also one of the earliest independent movies to be on amazon prime when amazon prime was still kind of in its infancy as a video streaming service um so because of that it has 
107 reviews on Amazon. Uh, five years, almost six years later, I ran a Kickstarter to turn it into a franchise, and we raised twenty thousand dollars in thirty days on Kickstarter. So that's what I've been working on right now. I'm, I'm working on uh, on parts two and three right now. We actually ended up shooting part four first because it just worked out that way. So uh, I mean, I remember I was literally like, "Well, the only reason to not shoot part four first would be for arbitrary reasons." So I guess we'll just go shoot it. So, but anyway, <laughs> you, you, if you have questions about Babysitter Massacre, please feel free to. Uh, <laughs> so we wa- we were watching the I think the the kickstarter video about yeah, the series yeah. so why does four have to be four why can't four just be number two because um i have a very specific uh trajectory for the for the series okay two is directly related to part one so we want those to be right next to each other because it's a direct continuation of part one like halloween one and two exactly in fact, it takes place at Christmas time because the first one took place at Halloween, so it's literally two months after the first one ended. Then three and four are unrelated but similar stories, so they could those two could be interchanged any way you want, uh, and they might. I don't know if they will or not. I mean, I, I, it's my it's my choice, so right. I'm still thinking about it. Uh, I did not direct part four, but I'm directing two and three. I'll probably keep those kind of bunched together and kind of go from there. I, do, I, I doubt there'll be a part five, you know, but you never know. I might I might get a wild hair up my butt and just put it on Kickstarter. 20, 20 and like, years from now, mind, you, you might know. need five and six. You never know. You never can <laughs> tell. Yeah, so part four is definitely kind of where it needs to be, I think, in the grand scheme of things. Plus, we have to deliver two and three, because four was a was a bonus movie that we got for a stretch goal. We went beyond, I think it was $18,000, so I was like, well, then we're adding another movie. Uh, two and three are owed to the Kickstarter backers. So I have to I have to make sure that they get exactly what they paid for, which is uh, part two sleigh bells and part three the overnight. So one's about Christmas and one is camping. So I got I to gotta deliver exactly what I promised or else I'm not worth my weight. And uh, spit, you know. Are, are, are three and four going to have continuation of the same characters, or are you bringing in all new characters? Brand new, group? entirely okay. new. Yeah, that's why one of the reasons we did part four in upstate New York was to give it a completely new aesthetic, different, you know, totally different locations, totally different people, and it's directed by a guy named Dan Wilder. Uh, it was his first feature, and he's actually the screenwriter of Haunting Inside, my most recent horror. I thought the name sounded familiar. Yeah. Right? So he he wrote that. That was his first screenplay to be turned into a feature like on screen and then uh he and i we've been working together for a few years and started to really click he lives in upstate new york we were writing partners on a really massive project that's still secret which is driving me crazy i would love to tell you guys all about it because it was such a massive undertaking and he and i worked tirelessly on it and we've developed you know several screenplays together that are um that have either you know been passed on or in limbo He's currently writing, putting the finishing touches on Babysitter Massacre 3 as you and I are speaking. I'm writing 2 because I wrote Part 1 in their direct continuation. Mm -hmm. But uh, he is kind of my go-to for that type of entertainment. For like the, what's the word, you know, the kind of... his his forte is like insane splatter slashers or like the really subtle ghost movie. Those are kind of his two his two like real expertises. That's why I loved having him do Haunting Inside because we had worked on so many outrageous things, and I was like, now I need you to pull back and do something eerie. That was one of my questions because it seemed that movie was really restrained compared to what I saw with Babysitter Massacre. Mm-hmm. So that's, but I didn't know if that was a directorial choice or that was the well, screenplay itself. I am so obsessed with diversity in the type of films I make mm-hmm. because I get bored when you well, first of all when you make you direct an average of two to three movies a year 
you get bored quick if you're making the same movie. I mean, literally, the movie I made after the first Babysitter Massacre was a movie called A Bulldog for Christmas, which is literally a Christmas, a feel-good Christmas movie about a talking dog. <laughs> that's that's. I mean, that was the next movie I did. I did that movie three and a half months later. So that's, and, that's a big gear shift. Exactly, and that's the one that I. I mean, we sold it all over the world. It did television in the United Kingdom. It was a very successful movie. Talking dogs, man. It, dude, you know, and it wasn't that. It wasn't a bad time to make. Yeah, I love the gear shifts. I'm, that's why I've done. I've done a romantic comedy. I've done a western, which also was another one that like I did that, and uh, it ended up becoming a internationally very successful. It's it's been released in China, Malaysia, Thailand, uh, Brazil. Oh, that's not in Asia, but it's still you know, <laughs> out there. Uh, it's it's all over the place. When I did Haunting Inside, that was me thinking about all the horror films I've done, which have varied from splatter to a little bit more spooky. Like uh, we we done like a haunted house in Sorority Row was kind of my horror was my horror follow up to Babysitter Massacre, and it was much more a creepy house, eerie lighting, you know, fog and and ghosts. But there was a little bit of violence and a little bit of gore and stuff like that. When I did Haunting Inside, I just I had just been so obsessed with like the Innkeepers. Did you guys see the Innkeepers? Mm-hmm. It's a Ty West movie. Ty West has done a bunch of movies, but he's kind of known for taking his time and and freaking you out. And I have never done what you would call a slow burn. Uh, Babysitter Massacre is actually, in some ways, I think it's too fast-paced. Sometimes when I watch it, I'm like, I'm dizzy. I can't take it all in. <laughs> uh, so I was like, you know what? I want to do something that's really deliberate. And that was the initial marching orders for Haunting Inside. I, I remember I came up with the idea driving home from Cinema Wasteland, a convention in Cleveland, Ohio, that I sell movies at. And I literally was like, what if, there, what if ghosts were presenting themselves to someone who couldn't understand that that's weird or dangerous? And that was where I came up with with the initial concept for having a a girl with kind of an autistic spectrum, mm-hmm. you know, being visited by ghosts who present themselves as friendly. So why would she assume they're not? And I called Dan Wilder on the phone and I ran down every idea I had right then and there. And then two and a half weeks, three weeks later, we had the first draft. And then we just kind of went from there. In fact, Dan pointed out to me on the audio commentary we just did for the movie that... Uh, that apparently the last draft was on Christmas Eve because he remembers me telling him, "Here are my last notes. Please don't work on it right now. It's Christmas Merry Eve. Christmas. Like, get me, get me in a few days." And then, so of course, he sends me the rewrite like three hours later. And I'm yeah. like, "Well, I'm not gonna read it. It's Christmas Eve." <laughs> so, but that was that was the big thing was like trying to do something a little different where it was it was more of a focus on being spooky, a little bit more of a focus on the atmosphere element. I'm going to step back in the conversation a little bit. Mm-hmm. When you talk, we were talking about you being writer, director, producer, marketing, and all that. As a an artist, it's tough turning off the self-editor or censor when you're making, when you're thinking about the business down the road. Oh, yeah. How do you, how do you battle that struggle? I turned it into... I turned it into almost a game. I find uh, market challenges to be just another creative challenge. So say you look at the marketplace and say, you know, I bet I could sell a Western. Well, then the next creative challenge becomes, okay, what's a Western you would like to make? Because you're going to, no matter <clears throat> no matter what you do, you're going to be working on the movie for months and months, mm-hmm. You know, maybe even a, put a year in all said and done. I try to have a movie soup to nuts in four to six months, but... Sometimes, I mean, they overlap a lot. So that becomes the big challenge is like, if you're making a Western, what's a Western you want to watch? What's a Western you think is interesting that still delivers to the people who also, who other people who want to watch it. Sometimes that's an easy battle. And sometimes that is a battle that wages for days. Sometimes that's a battle that can wage up until you're on set. <laughs> sometimes. And that's why like, 
<clears throat> oftentimes when I hire a screenwriter to come up with a, a, a film, I, it's usually based on like two or three or four ideas or themes that are what are going to keep me in, invested. So, like, a ghost movie is cool in and of itself, but a ghost movie about an agoraphobic on the autism spectrum who doesn't understand ghosts are dangerous or, or could be dangerous, that's fun. That's what would make me want to wake up every day at 6 in the morning and pace for 20 minutes and then drive to the set and, you know, <laughs> unload the heaviest lights by myself because, you know, the crew deserve an extra hour of sleep. That's going to get my butt to go and do that. <laughs> Uh, and that's that's the the biggest challenge. And like I said, sometimes it really it really can be something that you're battling with forever. I've I can't tell you how many times I had an idea, uh, like for a movie that I know would be a good idea for the marketplace, and I've had to go like to a park and walk for two or three hours listening to music and going, but what do I want? Like what would be cool? Yeah. Like what would make me want to do this? Because um you know the the writers that I work with are very talented. I've worked with about four screenwriters, very talented guys, but like, you know, we're making B movies and they're not being paid enough. They're not being compensated enough to come up with everything. They're, 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 they're being brought on to create something that they've been given the spark for, you know, that's what, that's what makes it worth their time. Cause they can do it in two weeks instead of six months. Right. Yeah. You know, I have to be the one who knows what this movie is They're You know, for the most part, although sometimes they've, They've shocked me and sold me on great ideas that I would have never thought of, which is another reason it's great to work with screenwriters is you end up making a movie you would never make if you wrote it yourself. Mm -hmm. But that's the big the big challenge. And yeah, and sometimes it comes easy, sometimes it comes hard. And like most things in life, the more often you do it, the easier it becomes. The more you realize, like, you know, there's a lot of pathos you can inject into just about any story that can be exactly what you want to get across. It took me a long time to realize that the thing I was most passionate about in the work realm was directing. If you'd asked me when I was like 19, I probably would have told you I was more into like tech because at that time that was the thing I knew the most about. Mm -hmm. I'd been, I'd been editing on final cut for years. And, and then if you'd asked me, you know, maybe a few years after that, I might've said camera, but you know, now as you talk to me, I would say directing hundred percent. I enjoy producing as well. Um, as long as I'm working with somebody I enjoy collaborating with directing is the thing that I feel I can, I can aim that you know, that shotgun known as directing, I can aim that at almost any project and enjoy it as long as I am allowed to be the director, you know, as long right. as I'm not being undermined. And luckily I've had very little experience with being undermined. It was mostly early in my career, oddly enough, and not later. So I think once you've made enough movies, people don't mess with you in that way because they know you'll just stomp them like a narc at a biker rally. And, and, you're, yeah, and you were young at that point in time, so they, they, yeah. they knew you were manipulative or manipulatable, but now... Exactly. You're more confident. You go, nope, this is the way it is. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, that's that's what it's come down to is is, is being able to go like, ah, I think I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. And if you don't like it, tell me how you would do it. Oh, you don't know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's because you didn't eat ramen noodles for, you know, 14 years so you could do it. <laughs> what percentage of your ideas move into going into production? Whew, that is a – I've never had that question asked before, and that's sincere. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Um, maybe 20 maybe a little more maybe a little less because because here's where it gets really complicated is at first i wanted to say like five and then i'm like oh but like the like uh, a lot of the movies i come up with sometimes four years later all of a sudden i'm like you know i think the time is now for that and then all of a sudden yep. i'm doing it and that's happened a lot like um bleeding through my third movie was a movie i'd had an idea for when i was 16 years old and i just couldn't do it and then one day i woke up and i was like i want to make a movie and i was like 
I think all the pieces are in place. Let's do that. You know, or like, gosh, like, um, what was the movie I just did? Did a movie called Nothing Good Ever Happens. Uh, it was a comedy. And that was one I'd had idea an idea for forever ago. Uh, my romantic comedy, I'd had an idea for that like six years earlier. And then all of a sudden one day I was like, you know, I bet if I put that on Kickstarter, people would, would finance it. And, it. and that's how I financed it. Yeah, I think it's probably in the 20 to 25% because I'll, I'll, I, I never seem to lose them. I also have like a notepad in my phone that is just full of titles. I'm constantly, and I have maybe nine fully finished screenplays that just for whatever reason were not right at the time they were written, but you never know. I have like a vampire script. If I ever feel like I could sell a vampire movie, I'm probably going to do one polish on that thing and go right into production. <laughs> you never know. Are there some that you started, you thought were good ideas and you start working on them and just like, this one is really going nowhere or I have no passion or interest in it that you just like not not just put on the shelf to get dusty you put it in the bottom drawer never to be looked at again never in that direct of a way usually if a movie can make it to the point where I'm talking to a writer about it it's going to be a screenplay period and it, whether it's going to be made or not that's a whole other game because I mean I make my movies that's the the hardest part is when people people ask like how do you finance a movie or how much how, what are the budgets like because every movie is completely different. There are movies that have some do-re-mi and we can do all kinds of cool stuff. And then there are movies that literally, they have nothing. And then there are movies that have a little something. It really varies. And I mean, like, uh, in 2016, I simultaneously made the most expensive movie of my career, a movie that was totally average in budget, and the cheapest movie of my career in the same year. <laughs> That must have been a a mental gymnastics fit. But, you know, in some ways, I mean, a great poet once said, mo money, mo problems. And it's true. So, I mean, sometimes knowing that it's like, look, we've got sandwiches for everybody. (laughs) And we've got a cool location. And all the actors know that they're just here to have a good time and do what they love doing with me doing what I love doing. Sometimes that is a great way to wake up in the morning with that attitude where you know everyone is there for the exact same purpose. But then there are other mornings where it's like, yeah, I made my car payment. (laughs) Sometimes that's pretty nice too. So, uh, but it varies. And also the source of the financing can vary greatly. I've I've self-financed several of my films. And sometimes it's great and sometimes it's really terrifying. When I made the Western, I uh, which is called Calamity Jane's Revenge, I believed so much that the marketplace would take it that I put my life savings into it. And every day on set was really fun. Thinking like, if we need another day, I don't know how. <laughs> But that movie ended up being one of my most successful movies that I've ever done, uh, sheer, from a sheer sales standpoint. How do you, how do you decide which movies can be self-financed, which ones you're going to go to Kickstarter with? Uh, that depends on need and then also just what's going on. Like any business, it's cash flow. Right. Sometimes I'm owed a bunch of money, but I have none. <laughs> And sometimes I have no money, and I'm not owed any money, and I'm like, oh. Uh, so it, it really depends. I mean, honestly. So it's not, it's not project-based, it's situation-based. Somewhat, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, if I'm making a project that I think is particularly niche, then I would, I'm going to spend the least amount of money on it possible because, I mean, if I spend $1,000 on a movie, now I own all the gear, all the lights, all the lenses, all the, so I, if I want, I can go out and make a movie for $0 yes. if I have to sometimes that's the most freeing way to go because you can be like okay and when this is done i sell 100 blu-rays 
and I've doubled my money, mm-hmm. and then anything it earns from then on out, however I'm able to exploit it, whether it's with a distributor, a sub-distributor, licensing it, or just selling it on my website, is gravy. And as, and if you have enough of those trickles, it turns into a waterfall. That's, that's the way it really comes down to. Uh, when it comes to putting a movie on Kickstarter, it's usually about... Usually I go to Kickstarter when I have an idea that no one would ever put money into, like, in a traditional <laughs> sense. Like, the first time I ever went to Kickstarter, it was for the talking, or it was Indiegogo, was for the talking dog movie. Because I was like, no one is ever going to give me any money to make this movie. <laughs> I had just been given money to make Babysitter Massacre. No one's going to make give me money to make this talking dog movie. So I went to Indiegogo and we raised, like, $2,600. Made the whole movie... It was a really fun time. The next movie I did on Kickstarter was... The first movie I ever did on Kickstarter was a movie called Awkward Thanksgiving, which was inspired by Bulldog for Christmas because I made this family holiday movie and I had all these ideas for an adult holiday movie that I couldn't use. So I was like, (laughs) I want to make a movie about a really raunchy Thanksgiving. And again, I was like, who's going to pay for this? So I went to my audience and said, who wants to watch a raunchy Thanksgiving movie? A decent amount of people came out of the woodwork for it. But no, it's so uh, awkward Thanksgiving. I think we raised like seven thousand something like that dollars, and we were able to make a really cool, sizable project. So then we did Making Out, and we did uh, Nothing Good Ever Happens on there as well. So it's mostly the movies that I don't think could be financed any other way. Because when it cut like Babysitter Massacre, literally doing the sequels on Kickstarter came from the fact that I had pitched some sequels before. Never got them off the ground. Babysitter Massacre was a modest success, a pretty decent success for a micro-budget movie, but it wasn't It wasn't just so big that people were pounding down my door. So literally one day I, I looked at my contract again and realized that the contract didn't sell the IP, it didn't sell the intellectual property. So I had no obligation to ask anybody to do a sequel. Uh, or, so that's when I was like, well then you know who would probably love a sequel to this? My The fans of my work, who a lot of them started with Babysitter Massacre. I put out the call and we raised twenty thousand dollars, which I think our goal was like twelve, <laughs> uh, or maybe it was even le- it might have even been less. Than that. It might have been like eleven. I can't I can't remember off the top of my head. And yeah, because again, it was like what do, what does the audience want? Because if they'll finance it, then I will go through the the rigmarole. So and again, similar to the other thing. So now I'll deliver all the perks, make everybody happy. The movie will be in the black, and then however else I can exploit it will be the gravy that I will hopefully live on. Although I don't recommend literally living on only gravy. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> it's not good for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, it depends on the gravy. I don't think it does. <laughs> have, have you tried the tofurkey gravy? <laughs> oh, okay, maybe the tofurkey <laughs> gravy. But uh, but yeah, so I mean, they vary they vary so greatly that it's it's very difficult because I mean, some of the movies the financing comes from me, some of the movies com- financing comes from independent financing options. Sometimes it comes from a company, a distributor, a, 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 or a producer, and then sometimes it's crowdfunded. And sometimes I mean, we've done also done movies that are like a hybrid of them. Like I've done movies where I was financing them, but I I went out and found some people that have like contributed to movies in the past and sold like a producer credit for I don't know how much I mean 200 bucks 300 bucks just to like offset a little bit of the cost on myself and that's a fun way to go too because a lot of the people who love seeing their name as a producer credit they're buying just that experience and I can afford to sell them that so it really just depends you end up when you make enough movies you end up with boosters who are really excited and sometimes they'll I've gotten uh, and I'm so thankful for these kind of people. I mean, I've gotten people literally email me and be like, you know, can I put money into a movie I know you're making? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> what would you like, though? You know? 
I'm very thankful for that. But yeah, the big thing is it's a hodgepodge. And if I have to be completely honest, when I decided I was going to do this for a living, which was just about five years ago, the decision was kind of pushed on me by being fired from my day job. And at that point, I, I, the success had started, but it hadn't really hit. If I had to be honest, I mean, I had to invent the business model. There is no, I'm not really on a standard business model at all. Everybody, including some of the friends, had said, like, well, there's no way you're going to be able to do that. And I was like, well, we'll see. We'll, we'll friggin' see, yeah. pal. Um, <laughs> but, but it was hard. And I mean, and I, there are Mondays where I wake up and I have to reinvent so much of the business model because something massive changes in the marketplace or in a relationship with a distributor or a content aggregator or whatever it is. Like at the beginning of the year, we had a massive change with Amazon. They've booted thousands upon thousands of independent movies. And they were a reasonable source of income for a lot of my back catalog. And all of a sudden, they booted all but three of my movies and then booted another one two months later. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm going from, you know, cashing decent checks to cashing, like, enough checks to buy a week of groceries from them. And I had to spend the first four or five months of this year just figuring out what to do with those displaced titles, finding new new places for them to earn revenue and things like that, and putting things into place that aren't even going to earn any money for, like, a year. So, I mean, it's not an easy job by any stretch. I spend more time talking to lawyers than I care to admit. When I was, when I was getting these movies out, I remember uh, friends would call me and be like, how are you? I'm like, ah, I didn't go through all this hell to become a producer's rep. I'm trying to, I'm trying to sell these movies because it's a way to keep my head above water. But, like, I want to go make a movie. I don't want to sell these movies for my whole life. So it's, it's challenging, to say the least. That's what I was going to ask about the... Um the industry how it's evolving because i know yeah because you started in the time i'm transitioned from videotape to dvd and now it's even buying blu-rays dvds or it's super almost in the past yeah, yeah so, physical but, media's niche and now the problem is like you just said these giant like youtube and things like that just kicking people off or they're yeah. kind of stifling a lot oh yeah of uh, the independent voices well what they're doing is they're simplifying mm-hmm. from their end in my opinion they're, they're simplifying things. By dealing with less independent creators the way that they do, they're simplifying their accounting. And they're simplifying... Because a homogenous marketplace is easier for them to navigate. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that they're necessarily aggressively doing it. I think that they're making very simple judgment calls that make sense to them. We live in a world now where brand is personality. And that's something I was very fortunate that I think I caught on to early. I never ran around telling people, like, this is my business entity. This is I just always went around going, ah, I'm this guy. I make movies. How are you? <laughs> and as, we, as, the, as this new you know, social media world has grown, that's how a lot of artists are, have gone. They've stopped being in things and started just being themselves. You know, uh, most people aren't supporting some record label. They're supporting Amanda Palmer. You know, yeah. They're not supporting some publishing company. They're supporting Neil Gaiman. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's that's the thing. So from my perspective, you know, when people are like, I have I have a business entity name, but it's strictly because people are like, well, what's your business entity name? And I'm like, oh, I uh, New Dynamic Pictures. Yay. <laughs> I mean, I don't hate that name, but like nobody's nobody's saying like, can't wait to see the new, next New Dynamic Pictures movie. They want to see the next Henry Kuto movie. Mm-hmm. And why should I argue with that? You know, yeah. When I started in 2005, the business was very different. But see, in 2000, when I was too young to be making movies that could be sold, the the business was booming, and there was a lot of money in it. 
I mean, a ton of money in it. I mean, that was when you could get, you could make a movie that maybe cost you $50,000 because of technology it had to cost that much. Uh-huh. But, I mean, you could get a signing bonus that was $70,000 and then get a cut of the proceeds and you might see a lot of money. And now it's it's a lot more risky. The distributors are taking bigger risks, so they want to take safer risks. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the, honestly, the biggest change for my entire career was when I started being market-minded about everything I did. Except, ironically, like when I said those Kickstarter movies where I'm like, I'm not market-minded at all. I just want to do this. Nobody else wants me to. Will you guys yeah. You guys want me to? But overall, <laughs> being market-minded has helped me immensely. Because the moment I made a movie that was based solely on my personal interests combined with market research and all of that kind of conglomerated, that was, you know, when I had the last independent film in Blockbuster. That was the, you know, that was Babysitter Massacre. That was the movie that people saw in droves. In a lot of ways, I feel like it is kind of in almost that simple because a lot of people make, I and mean, there are a lot of reasons to make movies. And I would never, I will never look down on somebody who makes a movie simply because they need to make that movie because I make movies simply that I mm-hmm. simply just need to make. I just find the right outlet for them. But, you know, when you make a movie that's entirely personal and entirely what you want and you don't really know if anybody else wants it, and then you're mad that it's not in Walmart, you're not, you're not being very realistic. No, but I mean, you're not. Like, when I made Depression the movie, I legitimately thought, like, I'll sell about 100 copies in my life of this movie. It just happened to do better. But, I mean, I spent, I spent like, $500 making that movie. Like, mm-hmm. probably less than that. We used, to, we used to shut down production when I just didn't have any money for lunch. <laughs> so we would wait a few weeks until I had money for lunch. I was working at the mall. Like, yeah. in fact, most of the cast of that movie are my coworkers from Spencer's Gifts at that time. Like, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's like the Dave Chappelle meme, you know, modern problems require modern solutions. Yeah. We're in a world now where while it is hard to get a deal or make money necessarily, uh, it is easy to be seen. Mm-hmm. It is easy to make content because the cameras are so impossibly cheap. Yeah. I mean, I shoot on high-end cameras, but they're still like, shoot on a, a great looking camera that's like $8,000 now, they, they were $200,000 for a camera that good in 2007. Yeah. yeah. And you only rented those. You would spend uh-huh. $7,000 renting it. And now it's like, now nah, I own a camera. You know, uh, it's one of the reasons I produce so much. I own all the gear. You know, somebody wants to make a movie, let's go make it. So I, I, in my rambling way, I guess I'm saying that like, you just have to evolve with it. And, you know, uh, there's a filmmaker I'm a big fan of named Adam Green who did, like, the Hatchet movies mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that. And he has a, a great a great thing he says because he says, I'll never discourage anyone from wanting to make movies. But what I do do is I ask them a very simple question. I say, if you can't make movies, like, what would you do if you just couldn't make movies? And if they have an answer, he's like, you should probably do that. <laughs> <laughs> and I can appreciate that because I don't have an answer. I don't, I don't know. I mean, like... At this point, if I were to stop making movies, I'm pretty sure the only way I could earn a living would be involved with movies. I don't know how... That's the only expertise I've grown in my entire life. Have you read the book Art and Fear? Hmm. One of the lines early in the book, it says, if you don't think about making art 24 hours a day, you shouldn't be an artist. Yeah, that's fair. Because actually, one of the things I've been talking about a lot is that I've learned that being a creative is just a way of life. You're, you're creative in everything you do. And you're constantly thinking about, like, what can I do to express myself today? And that's, that's very true. That's extremely true and, and very valuable. And, you know, I, I talk a lot about business acumen and everything. I should also mention, you know, uh, for the nuts and bolts element of filmmaking, I took becoming a director of photography extremely serious. I mean, you guys watch Haunting Inside. I, mm-hmm. I photographed that entire movie. 
I credited someone else because if you credit an outside DP, people are more likely to praise the photography. <laughs> when they hear that you directed it and DP'd it, then all of a sudden they're like, well, there's a lot of flaws. And I'm like, but if you put somebody else, they're like, wow, I literally had people after the premiere say, that new DP did an amazing job. Like, that's the best looking movie I've seen of yours. And I was like, it was me. Did you make up a name? Or yeah, is- yeah. I, 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 <laughs> I, this is the only place I've ever admitted it. Uh, yeah, I used the name Eddie Barnhart, which is the combination of two of my favorite fictional characters, Eddie Presley and uh, Ronnie Barnhart from Observe and Report. <laughs> so I just, Eddie Barnhart, he's my DP. He doesn't exist. He's well, he, just he does in your mind. But he does in my mind. Well, because one time I was, I was uh, working on a commercial for a, uh, a hospital. And they had a, I think it was like, they were doing 30 second spots and the, the, the budget was like twenty or $30,000 per spot. And they had hired, I was a, I was just a grip. I was not like a high end on that. I, I, but I needed money. I was working at Honest Day. And they had, some of the grips were union and the DP was flown in from Los Angeles. And about the fourth or fifth day we were working, we got to talking and they wanted to watch something I had done. So I, the night, at the end of it, I emailed them a link to a short I did called Christmas Presents next day they were just raving about it they were like it looked great it sounded great like I was really impressed with it blah 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 well then I made the mistake of saying like thank you you know I did everything myself except the sound and we shot it in four hours it's a you know very fast and literally their opinion instantly changed to like well I mean you could tell and I'm like what and they're like well you could tell and like the like whoever gaffed that really did not do a good job and I'm like Two minutes ago, you liked it. Yeah, which is why I, I often don't volunteer certain elements of production anymore because it just it, it shapes people's opinion. Um, and that's not a fair way to view movies. See, for me, because I, I, I love making movies and I love making them in a challenging environment, if somebody says, like, we shot this movie on 35mm film in five days, I'm like, wow! And then I watch it and I'm just like, but it looks great! And I would never guess! But other people might look at it and go, well, you can tell they cut corners. And I'm like, do you even like movies? Like, go away! <laughs> One of the things that has opened a lot of doors for me as a filmmaker has been that my films happen to be very sheened for the budgets. You know, uh, having a movie and making it for the cost of a used car, but then it being able to pass QC and air on television is a big feat and not everybody can do it. So that's like one thing that has really been a benefit to me. And, you know, when I'm when I'm when I could use a little extra money, I will go DP a feature and make really pretty good money. So that's a skill set I don't often talk about a lot because it's you can't really sit and explain like, well, you know, I spent a decade learning how to use lights. That's not very exciting. But uh, that's a really important element, too, is just even if you're making a movie insanely fast, we made Haunting Inside on a schedule so short it would blow your mind. But that doesn't mean you can't choose great shots and, and set up the lights in ways you think look awesome. You just have to be confident and make those decisions quickly. That's the only difference. Have you heard the story about uh, Picasso was having dinner or something somewhere and somebody recognized him and said, will you draw my picture for me? And he made like two strokes in like 30 seconds and said that'd be $5,000. <laughs> and they said, but it only took you 30 seconds. He's like, it took me a lifetime of practice to be able to do that in 30 seconds. Yeah, I mean... So that- you, you can, like you said, if you know what you're doing, mm-hmm. and sometimes if you don't know what you're doing, oh, you can yeah. rush through, you can get through things quickly and it's okay. Well, and like confidence is key, especially if you're making a movie quickly. Because what takes a long time making a movie is just deciding. Shooting a beautiful scene doesn't take that long to set up lights. I mean, generally speaking, you have like a key and you have a fill 
and you know maybe you want to go soft to make sure that they look friendly that's the, for the most part that's all it is so at the end of the day you know when i'm dping a movie and they're like you have 10 minutes to set the lights i throw the lights up and go that looks pretty good and then we roll if i have 20 minutes i'll throw them up and go that looks pretty good i'll try this i'll try this and then i'm like oh time okay and then we, we go do it, you know, it, it, and as I've done more and more, it becomes easier and easier. But even with some of my early movies, like Haunted House and Sorority Row, I think has some of the best photography of my career. And that was very early in like me shooting with prime lenses and, and stuff like that. But I'd just been throwing lights around for so long. You know, I just I would just go, you know, I'm pretty sure if I put a blue light right here, it's going to look boss. And then we just move on, you know. <laughs> The last time I had a meeting, I'm not against working with directors of photography. It's just the last time I had a meeting with a director of photography that wanted to, he wanted to get his first feature credit. I told him about the project we were working on. And I told him what the shooting schedule was going to be. And he was like, I don't think I could do that schedule. And I was like, wow, I've never in my life said that to somebody who wanted to hire me for something. <laughs> I've never said, oh, but I don't think I can do what you're asking. That's crazy to me. That immediately made me not interested. Right. Not just because he said he couldn't do it, but because the idea that he has in his head that he can't do things. Like, if I'm telling if him. If you're going with that mindset, yeah, it's not going to work. Like, if I'm telling him we can do the movie in five days, clearly I've done it. So why can't he? He's got three less jobs than me. Like, and he should be able to do it better. Sincerely. Right. I mean, I, I, all that said, like the movies that I strictly DP look better because I am not being pulled in multiple directions. I will never pretend that it's like I do all of them and I do them perfectly. I do them all pretty darn good. I'm pretty proud of myself, but I've also spent a lot of time, you know, pulling, cobbling together that. Does that come from your experience as the, in your 12 when you're 12 back in the... Being TV, the only one? Well, just being in the... In the in hanging out at the public access. Oh, yeah. Where you are have free access to control and play with the lighting and understand, bit, yeah. and understand how it works with the cameras. Well, and a huge help was uh, when I lived in New Jersey and had my job there, I had a roommate named Joe Kolbeck, filmmaker who's done a couple of movies himself, and he had went to the New York Film Academy. And he specialized in cinematography. And we used to talk about it. I just constantly pick his brain. And that helped a lot, too. I just learned a lot about setting up lights and, and, uh, and how important. I mean, because I'd, I'd known early on you have to light your movie or else no one's going to literally or figuratively see it. <laughs> um, but he helped a lot with kind of guiding me on that. I don't even think he realized it. I was just so excited to like learn. And he would light stuff with work lamps and stuff. He, he had a, he had low budget and he, but it always looked great. So uh, I kind of went with him for a while and that helped a lot too. And then it's experience. I mean, I've DP'd probably 23 or 24 features, uh, you know, including the 16 that I directed. So it's a lot of DP work. Have you moved to LED lights or are you still sticking with hot lights? I moved to LED lights in 2016, almost exclusively. I still have my hot pro lights. Sometimes those are the tool for the job. But most of the time I have, I have my main kit is four 500 LED lights. And then uh, I also have a like knockoff Kino flow for soft light right. that I love. And it comes in handy so much. So for the most part, that's what I use. But I, I think my light kit is obscene. I just have so many, like, because I have little lights and big lights and all this stuff. But the LEDs, sometimes they're not quite right for what you need. Right. Not often, though. Yeah. Like, when you need hard shadows, the LEDs don't really do it. Unless you can get an LED Lux light that costs, like, $700. And I'm like, that. I'll just use this 650-watt light I already have. <laughs> and I, already, I still have, like, five bulbs for it. So, yeah. you know. But they do get really hot. 
Um, yes, they do. <laughs> and I really enjoy not having to touch hot lights anymore very much at all. <laughs> Especially when you forget to wear the gloves. I never, I just lick my fingers and push it. I'm oh. not even joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we have to move them oh, significantly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that, uh, it's dangerous to yeah. do. <laughs> That's the thing, you know, uh, it, it, learning your skills and enjoying learning them is a real big, a real big element. And that's something I've been enjoying immensely because now, like with the movies that I uh, act as producer on, generally the package I am is I come as producer and director of photography. So I bring all the gear, I shoot the movie, and that allows me to know that the movie will be of a quality that I know I can sell to distributors because I've sold tons of movies to them. And 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 I've had such an experience, you know, with being so epically proud of some of the way the way some of it looks. I'm just like, man, ah, <laughs> oh, I got to I got to just shoot that. I got to oh, I got to use the gimbal today cuz I didn't have to go and find out what time lunch was. I was just working with the gimbal. <laughs> I mean, and I, I would say that, like, in many ways, photography is something that's very easy for me to get super excited about because making cool-looking images is just just it. Yeah. So. You've recently celebrated your five-year anniversary of freedom from a job. Yes. And I watched on your YouTube channel your video where you're talking about the things you've learned oh, yeah, over the yeah. five years. <laughs> so do you want to talk about your YouTube channel a little bit and sure. about your, what you've learned in your five years of freedom? Oh, lordy, lordy, lordy. I mean, uh, first of all, I mean, people are welcome to check me out. Uh, my YouTube channel is, is, is Doomboy5 because, you know, I made it when I was like a teenager. <laughs> but if you search my name, uh, which they'd have to copy from show notes because it's just Henry Kudo. Good luck spelling that, kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, but but the good news is if you spell it right, you'll find me. I mean, you're not going to find anybody else really. There is another one with the same name out there on YouTube. Oh yeah, well he probably doesn't speak English. Uh, that's my experience. Right. Yeah, uh, his are yeah his were not anything like yours. Yeah, he's Brazilian. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Probably. That's always the joke I say is like, type my name into Facebook. The one that speaks English is me. <laughs> it's a very common Portuguese name, very uncommon American name. Yeah, I post a lot of videos on there. I try to like occasionally do kind of like lifting the curtain on the job because uh, one time I was working with somebody. He had turned to me and said, like, I don't want to work for free anymore. I want to do what you do. And I was like, dude, I don't know if you know what I do. <laughs> like... Like, I mean, I don't blame you if you don't want to work for free anymore. You can go home. But, like, I don't think you have any clue how much of my day is doing what and how much of my day is doing the other thing. I mean, uh, I struggle when I'm at the movie theater to stop worrying about, like, I'm waiting on an email back from financers or, or whatever it might be. I'm constantly worrying and, and stuff. I learned that if you're working for yourself... You need to figure out how to live with no structure and make sure that you don't lean into, you know, prescription pain medicine <laughs> or, or, or whatever it might be. Because uh, there, there's a reason that creative people fall into those those holes. And it's not just – I mean, a lot of it is, you know, the, the classic tortured artist thing. But also, I mean, having no routine is almost as bad as having too much routine. You know, routine can kill you. I mean, because you wake up and you're like, same thing every day. But if you wake up every day and you're like, I don't know what to do, that can cause you to become really depressed. Mm -hmm. uh, I read an incredible book called Foolproof Filmmaking, which is a producer guide. It's written by Andrew Stevens, who was an actor turned producer, who did a ton of B-movies, did very well. And he said that, what, uh, that he was lucky he went from being an actor to being a producer full-time. And every day you wake up and some days you have no guidance for what your day is going to be. So he's like, I made it my job. Like, at 9 o'clock, 
I go to the gym, I work out for 45 minutes. Then at 10.30, I play basketball with whoever's at the gym. He's like, that's my job. Then I get lunch, then I come home, I you know check my calls or whatever, and then he's like, and then I go, I see a movie at 6. Like, he was like, that's my <laughs> job. If nothing else is, getting, is grabbing me, that's what I have to do every day unless something else comes up. And I'm somewhat similar. I check my emails in bed on my phone first thing in the morning. And then from there, it's, you know, those guide me. And if those don't guide me, I'm, you know, checking the news and doing whatever thing I wrote on a piece of paper the night before that I didn't get done that day. I was going to ask you about that because I was reading a book last year, Daily Rituals, where somebody went through and analyzed the daily rituals of 200 creatives over the last several hundred years. Oh, wow. And most of them were writers. Yeah. And they were, you know, like Stephen King won't leave his table or have lunch until he's written like 3,000 words that day. That sounds right, yeah. <laughs> um, and so a lot of writers will do that. And writers fascinate me because I have written a bunch of scripts, but like I am a very, like I am always challenged by having to write, even though I enjoy it and I think I've written some great scripts. Uh, I am not the disciplined writer that like the writers I work with are who can pop the script out. Like, I mean, there have been times I've popped a script out in two or three weeks and thought it was great, but there are other times that I have wished I was dead rather than write those scripts. <laughs> so I, I'm amazed by that level of discipline alone. I'm, um, I'm glad to hear that you are not a structured person because I'm not either. And I read all these examples of people who are creatives who are, you know, they have 715, they have their bagel with two ounces of butter, and completely like compulsive. And then my days were like, today I was planning on doing photography, but I got this email, so now I have to go and do this instead. I try to, I try to really, the big thing is I try to, after my emails are checked, I sit at my desk for an hour or two. And usually work presents itself if I'm in my workplace. But it also depends. I mean, like, if, uh, if I'm under financial strain, then all of a sudden I got plenty to do. <laughs> but it varies greatly. I try, but it's funny, though, the moment I'm in, I'm in, like, filming mode, I'm insanely structured. I keep a schedule tighter than anybody you've ever met in your life. When we were doing Babysitter Massacre 4, Dan had a few minor issues with keeping the schedule. He's a new director. And that's why I'm there. I'm there to help him stay on schedule. But the big joke was that he realized was that, like, on the second day, I was like, dude, we're behind. We got to keep going. We got to keep going. Like, I know you want to sit down, but there's no time to sit down. Go tell these guys that we're going. So we pound and pound and pound, and then we catch up. We're on schedule. And I'm like, okay, but now we should get ahead of schedule so that we don't have to worry about falling behind. So I'm like, let's go, let's go, let's go. Next day, I'm like, let's go, let's get ahead of schedule. Let's do it. Let's get ahead of schedule. Let's get so ahead of schedule. We can't believe it. So I'm like, keep going, keep going, keep going. And then he's like, dude, we're like an hour and 10 minutes ahead of schedule. I'm like, great, but don't get cocky. That doesn't mean you get to slow down now. Now is when you're really getting. He was like, so just always hurry up. And I'm like, you're getting it. <laughs> you're getting it. So, well, because once you start slowing down, the cast slows down and yeah. kind of get them back up to speed again. The cast and crew getting them back up and going again. It's, it's a train that you're oh, trying to get started again. Exactly. There's a director who I admire greatly named Jeff Burr. Uh, Jeff Burr has done some arts films. He's also done some some great exploitation movies. Uh, he was most famous for doing Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, for doing uh, Pumpkinhead 2, Puppet Master 4 and 5, but he also did a brilliant movie called Eddie Presley, which might be my favorite movie of all time. It's a movie about being creative and being depressed, and he's done a lot of great movies. probably directed, I think, 30, 40, 50 movies. He and I became friendly through just total chance, and uh, he was in my movie Making Out. He did a little cameo in it, and we, we sit and talk about stuff, and it's always amazing to me because he worked in Hollywood, 
you know, making sequels and, and doing all this stuff and working for all these crazy people. But he'd actually sit and talk shop with me, and I'd be like, I'm just a guy in Ohio who's making it up as I go along. And he's like, yeah, but you're still making movies, man. But Jeff said something great to me once, uh, which is he watched one of my movies, and he watched the extras. And he's like, you know, I know you're going to do good because you're the most energetic person on your set. Because when, uh, when you're the director, you're a locomotive. And your cast, your crew, the story, those are all the, the, the carts you're pulling. If there's no locomotive, the carts are just going to sit there. But if there's no carts, then you're just a train pulling into a station. People are like, what are you doing here? <laughs> so you got to be that locomotive. You are the source of energy for your whole thing. I'm doing a... I hope that if he hears this, he doesn't hate my impression <laughs> of him. But that stuck with me forever. The, the idea you're the locomotive and you are pulling the film along and it's completely true uh if you wake up and you're not feeling it they, everyone else is going to start to not feel it you gotta you gotta get up every day even when i mean we the secret project we did last year we had an incident where we had a great location but un, unideal time i let we had, were filming the night before but then this the location we could only get it from six o'clock to eleven so six in the morning till eleven so we wrap shooting i send the entire crew home at midnight pack the car with just me and the producer. So we're there till like one, go home, sleep. Now it's two and then get up at five and do it again, pack the car and go. Yeah. And, 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 and all of that. So the crew could gain two extra hours of sleep because I felt like they would probably be much more unhappy than I was going to be. And then, you know, the moment I'm on set, I'm just like, how's everybody doing? Let's do this. We got coffee over there. And I don't even drink coffee. That's the most terrifying part. Uh, <laughs> when I was working with Dan on Babysitter Massacre 4, he was just like, do you never drink it? Because he drinks it like three, four times a day. He's just like, never? And I'm like, ah, it makes me speedy. And he's like, all right. <laughs> uh, back in my early career in corporate America, I was reading business books to figure out how to be a better business leader because I had a mm-hmm. team of people that worked for me. And one of, the wing, one of the things that stuck with me all these years is, as a leader, you give up the right to have a bad day. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, like you said, if, you, if you're not feeling it that day, it mm-hmm. doesn't matter. You still have to move forward and pretend oh, yeah. like it's all good. And if you're lucky, on when you have a truly bad day, you have a team good enough to pick you up. Yes, but you can't re- you can't rely on that unless you really know who you're working with. You, you you can only play that card a few times. Oh, you need to play it as little as possible. I've been very fortunate because I've had a team that has picked me up when I've been down. Um, actually, when I was doing Haunting Inside, I got very very ill right before we were supposed to start shooting and ended up having to get surgery. The filming was three and a half weeks after my surgery. It was too soon, and uh, it wasn't a major. It was I mean it was. What they called the major minor surgery. It was it was a uh, it was a gallbladder removal. So it was it was a minor procedure, but it was a major abdominal event. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had one. I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know, you're not like yeah. It was tough. They had told me you can go back to work a week after. You can lift heavy things two weeks after, but your mending will take four to six weeks. I was struggling uh, with energy and stuff because I would just get so tired. And I mean, I'm used to pounding the, and I don't work people super long days. We usually work 12 hours. If we work a 13, 14, 15 hour day, it's because, uh, it's the last day or it's because we're like waiting on the sun. It's like we're filming and filming and filming, but then we got to stop dead and we need night to keep going. Those are the only times I pull that people need to work like 15 hours. You know, at least then there's like a nice break. You know, when we make a movie really quick, we're doing 12 hour days tops. 
try try to be fair to people. I, you know, I I think you should only again like you know relying on your team. Like when I come to people and I'm like today we have to do 16 hours to get what we need. I always give everybody that pep talk where I'm like I really appreciate that you guys are going this extra mile because it's not easy and I don't take it lightly making people work you know two eight hour days in one day. So, but that movie, I mean, I, I remember the, 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 the cast and crew were very kind to me as I kept having to sit down, and which is impossible to imagine that I would do, is to go and sit down. When we're in the midst of production, all of a sudden, I'm like, I gotta sit down. I don't know how I could stand if I keep standing. And that's why we actually, we broke the production up after that, and went. we waited another three weeks before we started shooting again, because I just, needed- I needed that time. Yeah. And then I felt a billion times better. <laughs> Speaking of Haunting Inside, you had the world premiere recently, and yes. you're screening it this weekend, which is July 13th, mm-hmm. at the Mayflower Arts Center in Troy, Ohio. Yes. So let's talk about Haunting Inside. Yes, absolutely. And it, oh, the, the, the movie starts at what time on Saturday? Uh, doors open at 7, the movie starts at 8 o'clock. And you will be there talking to people? I will be there. Good luck getting me to shut up. <laughs> uh, yes, I will I will be there, and I'm thrilled. I, um, I love the Mayflower ever since I started coming here with a friend of mine who's local to Troy, and I really like became extremely in love with it after they did the uh, Best Friends Volume 1 and 2 screenings with Greg Sestero. Because I was just like, this is the kind of stuff I want to go do. I want to go see something I don't usually get to see and meet somebody I don't usually get to meet. Mm-hmm. That's boss! <laughs> so when uh, when I was approached to show a movie uh, at the Mayflower Arts Center, I was like, yeah, let's do it. And I've always thought Troy was pretty cool. I mean, like I have a, a good buddy who lives here, and I visit him often. So I'm really excited to to show the film here, to show in a new theater. That's another thing that's really exciting is having your work show in somewhere it's never shown before is just very exciting because the, the big screen is already a dauntingly exciting moment. I'm excited. I'll be here. I'll be hanging out when the doors open, just kind of talking to people. And then afterward, we're going to do a little Q&A. You know, we'll keep it pretty casual. If uh, if people aren't feeling a, a hardcore q and I'll just stand out in the lobby and people can come by and, and high and five I, I, or spit in my face. Or whatever. awkwardly turn their head down and walk by you and hope you don't say hi dude that happens oh i know it does <laughs> yep. it happens everywhere <laughs> i usually try to like uh to confront people when they do that like not in a mean way just like hey it's all good like have a good one what was it? uh somebody facebooked me or no no they posted on facebook and said that it was their first screening of mine they went to see haunting inside when we did the premiere world premiere at the Baijo theater and they said that they they were like i'd never i've never experienced this before i was seeing a movie for the first time ever i leave to go to the bathroom and on my way back into the theater the director stops me and tells me what i missed and then sends me back to my seat <laughs> that that's that's, that's customer service, service. <laughs> yeah i mean well because i'm already standing at the back nervous anyway so like when they walked up i was like okay so she just found out that this is happening and now she's getting ready to do this and they were like oh th- thanks and i was like all right yeah. <laughs> back to your seat now uh, <laughs> so you, you talked a little bit before in our discussion today that it's an agoraphobic autistic character yes that plays with ghosts? Yeah, so I, I had this idea. I, I've always been fascinated with savantism, the idea that like the brain leans into one direction very, very heavily. You can be incredibly strategic, but not be at all socially aware, things like that. So I, I thought, well, what if we had a character who is agoraphobic and loves to play board games, but plays them by herself? Just plays all the, the parts herself. Now, what if you hand her a Ouija board? Because I am a child of the of witch board. You do not use a Ouija board alone. If you do, you open yourself up to all kinds of catastrophe. <laughs> that was kind of the impetus. And then there were like little elements here and there I, that were my idea and then little elements that were Dan's idea. But uh, I love the idea that basically 
she is terrorizing her brother. Uh, the real horror of the film is that the, her brother is taking is is tasked with taking care of her. She's a twenty four year old, twenty five year old woman, and he's a similar aged man. And their parents are no longer around. From his pers- from her perspective, she's playing with ghosts and doing all kinds of weird games that she doesn't understand. But from his perspective, her illness is getting worse and worse, and he's having a harder and harder time dealing with it. And I think that's terrifying. The idea that somebody you uh, you care about that you are uh, caring for that you actually just can't do it anymore. I think that's a really horrible, like mortifying thought. So that was my, the most exciting element for me was the idea that like the whole movie, she's having fun with the ghosts. She doesn't understand that maybe they're dangerous and he is struggling with like, how much longer can I live with my sister getting this bad? Like at what point am I just kidding myself? When do I send her away? That's hell. I would not want to be in that situation. And he doesn't know there are ghosts, you know, at all. He just thinks that she's getting weirder and weirder. So that was like, that was my big excitement. And I, I was a little inspired by the Babadook because that was something I thought mm. was really scary about the Babadook was the idea that like the child is just getting worse and worse and worse. And the mother's like, maybe I'm not able to be a mother to this child. And that's a terrifying thought. <laughs> uh, so I thought a similar idea about being a caregiver. And, and I've always liked the idea of, um, of outsider <laughs> characters that you learn to root for, like, like a girl with agoraphobia and, and a kind of autism that, you know, is hard to identify with, but at the same time is even easier to identify with because she's such an open book. So that was the the big impetus. And I like the idea of showing the ghosts in a light that literally and figuratively in a light you don't usually see. They're almost entirely shown in warm, buttery light in friendly times, middle of the day when her brother's away, you know, stuff like that. And only on rare occasions do you see them in that kind of traditional spooky, dark nighttime light. For the most part, they're just sitting there saying, hey, I'll teach you how to cook something. Hey, you want to play hide and go seek? And she's like, yeah, I can't leave the house. I need friends. And never once thinking, like, these people seem out of place, (laughs) out of time <laughs> Dustin has questions uh please please I just wondered some of the influences uh-huh specifically like it's ghost story mm-hmm. which is a subgenre so I just wondered some that you said Babadook but recent influences um literature because it there's also I mean like turn of the screw is a similar way where you have a caretaker with children who are seeing ghosts are the ghosts really there? I just wondered some of your... Oh, I never even thought about that as being yeah. simple. That's a, that's a really good point. My biggest influences with ghost stories are honestly like, <laughs> like, are you afraid of the dark? Yeah. Uh, that's a big influence on me. I often reference to Tim. That's why I'm screwed up. Yeah, that, that show was, was legit scary. I mean, like, I was a kid who was watching Freddy Krueger movies, but I would tune into Are You Afraid of the Dark? And sometimes I would be really freaked out when it was over. So that's always been a big insp- inspiration. I've always loved how Are You Afraid of the Dark would kind of play with you, and sometimes they'd be showing you a ghost and not tell you to the end yeah. that you were seeing a ghost. Yeah. Uh, I really love The Changeling. Mm-hmm. Changeling has been a big influence on me, the George C. Scott horror movie. Mm-hmm. A lot of the way I, I like to depict ghosts is from Changeling. And then the other big one, which I highly recommend you guys check out, is The Innkeepers. Ty West's The Innkeepers. It's about two people who uh, work in a hotel on the night shift. Mm-hmm. And it just gets freakier and freakier and freakier. And it is the definition of a slow burn. I mean, you yeah. have to give it 50 minutes to really see a ghost. And it is awesome when you do. It is such a great little film. Can't recommend that on enough. That was the one of the first movies I watched where... Uh, when it was when I was done watching, I was like, I'm glad it took forever. <laughs> yeah, and I don't usually feel that way. It takes a lot for me to really love to take a while. Uh, that was probably a huge influence, probably the innkeepers. 
And as far as literature, I'm not a huge reader, mm-hmm. but I am an obsessive reader of like young adult horror novels, like mostly like R.L. Stein pre Fear Street. Goosebumps. Uh, oh no, well Goosebumps was post Fear Street. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah. So I'm talking, I'm talking like when he was doing like Beach House and Beach Party and <laughs> the Girlfriend and the Boyfriend and, and uh, like all these one-off books. I found them to be really creepy. I was reading them when I was way too young. I was because they were my sister's books. You know, she's nine yeah. years older than me, so I'm, I'm like, oh yeah, like Goosebumps. Then I'm reading, I'm like, this is not like Goosebumps. <laughs> so those were were big influences on how I see ghosts. But I think, yeah, I think. Are You Afraid of the Dark is probably the biggest way that I, I see ghosts in movies. I often reference, because recently we've had a kind of a horror renaissance in popular culture, mm-hmm. but I reference our age group probably is because of the 90s we were overloaded with horror stuff. For whatever yeah. reason, I mean, Tales from the Crypt came out, Are You Afraid of the Dark, there was a lot of horror influence that now you're seeing filmmakers... It's become more mainstream than it used to be, I think. Oh, yeah. Well, it's fascinating to watch people be influenced. I mean, my God, watch Stranger Things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My God. I mean, uh, they're so influenced by what they saw as, as children. And they um, smack you in the face with it. They do. Well, that's the, the gig on <laughs> that's that one. The, yeah. So, uh, so, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I don't know exactly why there was such a crazy need to scare the crap out of kids in the, in the 90s, 90s. but there was because there's no <laughs> scary kids i mean now we get like we get like the hotel transylvanias and stuff like yeah. that they're not really scary no. they're 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 more fun and you know now we've had the resurgence of the two goosebumps movies yeah which uh i which liked were, that first movie i liked both of them i thought it was i didn't see the second oh, one, the second one was a lot of fun i remember i watched the first one on a whim just because i had read goosebumps when i was like oh goosebumps was we were bombarded with goosebumps yeah but, um, I felt like it did a good job of following a Goosebump narrative. Yeah. But still referencing Goosebumps. It, it was, and it was fun. You would like the like sequel. Would I? You would, yeah, definitely. It, it, it's a little bit more focused. Oh, yeah. Um, because the first one had to establish this whole world uh-huh. or whatever. So it's a lot of fun because it's just, uh, it's about them finding R.L. Stein's first manuscript, which was thought to be lost. Pretty, pretty good stuff. Uh, oh, I, you love it. I guarantee. <laughs> and there's a great jab at Stephen King in it. You'll I'll definitely have to watch it. <laughs> oh, you'll you won't miss it. Um, but no, so I think those are my biggest influences. It's funny because um, I'm like I'm such a massive consumer of movies. Sometimes I forget, like I forget to even think about influences in like a conscious way. Because mm. I try to watch like seven or eight movies a week. I try to. Sometimes I succeed. Sometimes I fail. New to me movies, if I can. Which I sometimes I wonder if I'm just like overfilling my brain and it's all just spilling out of the back yeah. when I keep watching movie after movie. <laughs> you say, oh, I watched that. Yeah, uh, I do have trouble sometimes. I'm like, uh, a movie will start and I'm like, oh, I saw this. Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> have you actually seen it, or just you think you've seen it because you've seen so many other movies like it? Oh no, I, I'm so uh, not confident that I've already seen something that if I have any question, I'll just watch it again, just in case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, really. <laughs> Because, like, uh, I've always taken, like, watching media as, like, downloading it to your brain. I'm, like, that's an obsessive compulsion of mine. When I was a kid, actually, it's a Goosebumps story. When I was a kid, when Goosebumps would come on, I was so excited for it. I used to, while the theme was playing, I would I would clean my glass lenses. Like, because I had to, like, take, I had to take it in properly. <laughs> it's so silly now, but, like, yeah, I would, like, I would literally be putting the glass cleaner on my lenses while the theme was playing and put my glasses on and be like, all right. I can take it in now. So if I play the theme song right now, you would compulsively take your glasses off and clean them? I have a cleaning wipe, so <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know how, how, ingra- yeah, how ingrained that was in your personality. <laughs> Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. That was another one. Loved this it. This came out, and then uh, they're doing the movie now. I don't know if yeah. Gonna be. It'll be interesting to see how they do it. but I'm curious um, about it. 
I, I thought it was funny. I saw I saw horror fans complaining that it's PG thirteen. I'm like, you know, this was a kids book, right? Yeah, even like, for PG thirteen. Yeah. Yeah. Why would it be? It's not going to be like R and covered in. Although probably only older people will see it. Uh, that's the that's the well, funny it'd be thing. Like, yeah, thirties. Yeah, yeah. In their thirties. Us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, our generation. Well, I mean, a lot of stuff is marketed toward us at this point because we're the biggest consumers. Of it media is that's the nostalgia concept. for '90s and '80s now. So, oh yeah. yeah, but that'll change. I don't know what the nostalgia for the 2000s is gonna be like. Goosebumps. I remember being in elementary and we got the Scholastic. Oh yeah. And every month it was a new. It was a, and it was kind of genius. And you're talking about kind of the business aspect of Scholastic and R.L. Stein of how they they represented it to us almost like. TV or mm-hmm. where oh it's a new episode oh it's a new yeah, book it's, it's, some were bad story. some were good and even some would have the preview of the, of the next, next book. book oh yeah 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 and they get you hooked and that was I mean culturally it was for my generation I still remember it oh I mean it was brilliant and yeah. Goosebumps might have been one of the biggest driving factors I mean the paperback era in the 90s is fascinating uh huh because people often talk about the 70s and 80s which were big but like the trade paperback like the the disposable in quotes you know paperbacks yeah. where people just kind of get them and read them i have um around 290 of those those yeah. paperbacks like for but for the more for teen element like nightmare hall and, yeah. and fear, street fear street and all this stuff they were cranking those out so aggressively because high school students would just read them and read them and read yeah. them and read them and some of them were gruesome yeah, uh, Christopher Pike wrote some yeah, messed up Pike stuff was... for kids, man, for teenagers. And Goosebumps, I guess, are still on the list of being banned. They're one of the top banned books. Goosebumps. Well, because they're directed directly towards little kids, uh-huh. and they're scary. Yeah. And some of them were really scary. But is okay twenty years ago? No, that's when they were banned. Okay. Because, yeah, that was. And I remember was getting problem. in trouble. If this makes any sense, in school trying to read Goosebumps. As opposed to doing whatever the teacher wanted us to do. So I would sit and try to, and they would make us put them away because you'd get them new. Because they'd get the big scholastic box and you're like, oh, you know, oh there's a scary scarecrow. Or whatever. And you try to yeah. start reading and the teachers are like, you have to put them away because we have to do math, which no one wants to do. My, uh, my mother now had... it's like teachers like, read, yeah. please, please read. And everyone's like, God. no thanks. <laughs> when, when I was in middle school or uh, elementary school, my mother got a call because we had to do a book report on any book we wanted, and I was reading all of those young adult books from my sister's collection, and I read a, a book by Christopher Pike called The Last Vampire, which is an amazing story about a vampire woman who lives in a world where vampires have taken over, um, but uh, AIDS has killed them. <laughs> if you, if you kind of like, what was the movie they did? Sam Neill was in it recently. Oh shoot! I'm and not they sure. were drinking. It was like in a dystopian, futuristic. But the vampires were, they were, they were like the normal. Yeah. And yeah, uh, there was some kind of disease in the blood, and it was killing. I forget yeah. what the movie. Was. Well, this one was about AIDS. Literally, I mean, it was AIDS. And so the big thing is like finding humans that aren't infected. But if you bite them, then they're gone. I mean, you can't. Yeah. Right. I wrote a book report on it, and that that book ends in a really dark way. <laughs> and my teacher had to call my mother was just like do you know he's reading a book about like vampires getting AIDS and being buried alive for eternity and all this stuff my mom was like oh yeah 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 Daybreakers what? That's what it was. Daybreakers. oh yeah Daybreakers yeah it was an Australian movie but yeah The Last Vampire highly recommended super sad they <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, had also I got um, in the 90s I think it was because of Goosebumps but they started re-releasing certain Edgar Allan Poe oh yeah for like Junior high, or, oh, and yeah. I got onto those, and it'd be his more and the black cat, and the and those I remember being were terrifying as well. But oh, and I I, I 
checked out an Edgar Allan Poe book when I was in fourth grade from the library, yeah. and it was like old as sin too, which was beautiful. Yeah, this like wood cutting, yeah, yeah, the ink wood cutting, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh man, those were the days getting scaring the crap out of yourself reading Edgar Allan yeah, Poe on a Friday night. <laughs> Other people were like, "Why are you reading that?" Oh, that's if you had friends, they'd ask that's a question friends, like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> Something I'm interested in because mm-hmm. I study film at UC, and I study more from the writing aspect, mm-hmm. cultural aspect, stuff like that. I don't watch nearly as many movies as you do. So from like from like <laughs> from an academic standpoint, mine's like, like yeah, film study. So you're uh-huh. looking at culture, that kind of thing. How do you feel about, and I'm a huge critic of it, mainstream Hollywood today being um, the corporation, Disney kind of owning everything? Because like yesterday we went to see Midsummer, That was playing in one theater, but Spider-Man was in literally all the other ones. Because I would walk out and go into one to see what was playing. Uh-huh. And my wife was looking at me like, what are you doing? I said, oh, we used to do this all the time. <laughs> but they're all like... It's almost, and I said, it's almost a return to the old days where the studios owned the theaters. And that's until the 1960s when they broke it yeah. up. Uh, you're right, but you're also dead wrong. Yeah. Because the this is where it's really weird. Everything is double-edged. So mm-hmm. the death of celluloid changed everything. It's the only reason you're going to see Hereditary or Midsummer or right. any of those A24 movies or any of that is because of digital distribution yeah. becoming so affordable. We're actually in a world now where we're getting like a lot of indie stuff in theaters. They're trying it. They're trying. Now, sometimes it fails, sometimes it succeeds. Mm-hmm. But like if you were in in 2000 Two, if you wanted to see a movie in the theater, they had to book a film print. It had to be delivered by a, a courier yeah. service. It cost a bunch of money uh, just to ship it. And then if two people came to see the print, they'd be like, all right, bye. We got it because it's got to go to the next place. Yeah, you'd have a yeah quick because they're not striking a ton of prints. They cost like seven to ten thousand dollars a print. Right. Maybe more. Now, though, like just the fact that we have a movie like Midsummer and it's in like every theater, yeah. basically every multiplex is insane and amazing. And they're able to risk so little, relatively speaking. They're risking a lot of PNA of prints and advertisements, uh-huh. but they're not risking a lot of money on prints at all. Really, I mean, like, the DCPs they're making are probably a couple hundred dollars each. Uh, maybe maybe a little bit more, because, you know, the labs like to inflate prices. But, but they're not expensive. And, like, it, it, in 2005, 2006, 2007, when I was making movies, uh, screening in a theater was, like, you were lucky if a theater had a video projector. And it looked like crap. Now, if I want, I can screen a movie at, at the Cinemark. I just have to four-wall the theater. Mm-hmm. And they can show anything I want off of a Blu-ray. That's an incredible departure from the way things used to be. Yeah. So, in one way, I think that the major studios are having to lean into the fact that they are big in order to keep getting big ticket sales. So, they're basically all about the tentpole movie. Oh, yeah. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have people like Blumhouse, who are making tons of movies with the audience in mind. They're all relatively cheap. And they're doing such a good job that, I mean, Universal won't let them out of their grasp. Universal's yeah. like, no, 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 we'll put all of your movies into the theater. We want a piece of that movie costs $5 million and makes $70 million. On we horror is that. the way they go with that stuff. Is Mostly, I always yeah. say that. It's, it's, they're low budget. Even Midsummer's filmed on $10 million. I said it'll 
double triple that. By Very the likely. Of yeah. Very likely. Just, Although I would not have spent that if I was a producer. I would not spend ten million on Midsummer. No more than five. <laughs> no, really. Yeah. What are you oh, spending yeah. it on? What are you spending it on? Come on. They had two nice of sandwiches. But uh, <laughs> you're spinning on Ari Aster. <laughs> in one hand, yeah, because like the big ticket selling movies are events. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I mean, the fact that you were at a movie theater and it was like Spider Man, Spider Man, Spider Man, Spider Man, Midsummer. Yeah. Wow, it's kind of nuts. And talk about offering an alternative, though. It is, but it isn't because A twenty four. Even though it's their movies, generally are you see them as oh, it's an indie. They're still the bigger end of indie. Well, but they've grown that right. And that's just to be competitive. So it's, yeah. Well, and and if they keep up, keep that up too much, they'll die. Yeah. That's, history has shown us that if you grow too much when you when you have an indie model, you collapse. That's why uh, Roger Corman laughs on the graves of all of his competitors. No, I mean, every competitor he had in the 80s is gone. Yeah. Gone. Every competitor he had in the 90s is pretty much gone. In fact, I yeah, almost, I mean, like every major competitor, Trimark, Vidmark, Live Entertainment, they're all gone. Every single one. De Laurentiis, gone. They're all gone. And Corman's still around. He's super old now, so he doesn't make a lot of stuff, but he's still laughing and he's solvent. Yeah. <laughs> Overall, we're seeing way more indie stuff. And we're seeing... They're willing to take bigger risks than ever before. I remember there was that movie, The Pyramid, that horror movie where people go into a pyramid and there's a I, monster. I've seen stuff. parts of it, yeah. I yeah. like that movie. It was just in the theater one day. I was I was literally like looking at the you know the app to see what was showing, and it just said The Pyramid, and I clicked on it, and I was like, horror movie about Egypt? And I was like, well, I'm, I'm seeing that tonight. <laughs> like, I've never even heard of it. And it was gone like three or four days later. But the and, and when I went to see it, I was probably one of the only people there. But they tried. Yeah. And that's pretty cool. And I got I got to have that awesome experience. I got to see it in a nice theater with nice chairs, nice sound. So I have a really positive opinion of the pyramid. A lot of people didn't like it that much. I thought it was boss. And that double-edged sword thing, the reason you were able to see it largely is because Disney movies are making Spider-Man grossed 128 million. They're in one keeping weekend. the theaters. They're alive. keeping the theaters oh, open. Yeah. That's that double-edged sword where it's yeah, true. They do have the more indie stuff, but yeah, a couple days it's gone. It. Yeah, Spider-Man's back end. And the digital, I read, it's... The thing with digital is now, let's say um, you run us uh, for, what, three weeks. And by the end of the second week, you're no one's coming. So what they can do is then just upload Avengers to this other theater. And so now you have a full... Because mm-hmm. you're selling out Avengers. So then the theater goes, well, no one's coming to see us. Throw Avengers on there, and it keeps the money coming in. So yeah, in a way... But then it's a it's a bizarre relationship because it's like well, yeah, Disney is basically running. Well, we've also seen a massive change in special event screenings. Yeah. I mean, I've seen tons of movies where it was one. Yeah, night they only. do the classic stuff as cool. Well, well, but I mean, and and not just classic stuff, but I mean like one night only Sharknado. Yeah. One night only Sharknado two, and they were packed because it was one yeah, show. One so they got a hundred and twenty people to come out in the middle of Dayton, Ohio, you know, or wherever yeah. in the middle of the Midwest. And we all came out to have a good time, and that would never, ever, ever happen. Or like all the Rift Tracks events, I never yeah. miss one. They're Rift so Tracks much fun. Never would. Ha- I mean, it would literally couldn't happen if film was a thing. No, literally couldn't happen because the, how? How? What would they do? Film the show film it, on video yeah. and then dump it to a thirty-five millimeter print. Spend forty thousand dollars doing it. Send it to you so that one hundred and twenty-five people can chuckle for two hours. Like they ain't happening. Yeah. And with as far as Disney, I mean, Disney's big. 
but there are a lot of big players out there. I mean, Universal's not owned by Disney, yeah. uh, and they're doing pretty good. Uh, Paramount, I guess. In, in Netflix, but then Disney is just huge. bought 20th Century Fox. So That's true, but Fox hadn't been doing very well for quite a while, in in many ways. Yeah, just so, so they don't buy. Yeah, well, <laughs> Warner Brothers doesn't need anyone to buy them. No, they're doing really not. well, yeah. thanks to it. And, uh-huh. and and that what was that movie I just saw an ant like the Annabelle and the Conjuring movies and stuff, they're they're yeah, kicking a lot of butt and they have Nolan. Uh, that's fine. I don't yeah. know. I I, I, <laughs> I have trouble getting through his movies. <laughs> they're just too long. Going back to Haunting Inside, which is screening this Saturday, what are some things you want people to know about for the movie? Uh, well, I think, first of all, there's something so exciting about getting to go and see a movie that basically no one has had a chance to see yet. That's something that's really exciting. Like, uh, 100 people, 140 people have seen it, period. The film has not been released nationwide. We're negotiating with a distributor for it, right? Like, literally right now. Like, when we took a break, I checked my phone to see if they've written me back yet. To get to be a part of something totally new, to be one of the, the first people to see it, to get to see it in the theater, which is not an experience you'll get to get. I mean, whatever distributor picks it up is not going to push it into theaters. They're going to push it into video on demand. They're going to push it uh, maybe into Redbox. They're going to do that. Just to get to be a part of the show, to get to see a, a brand new movie, to get to see some of the people that worked on it, to get to have that experience, I think that's the most exciting part. That's what would drag me out. When I see, like, you know, director in person, writer in person, uh, star in person, I'm like, well, that sounds... Like, it's an experience rather than just going to see a movie. So uh, I'm hoping that that will uh, get people excited. And also I want, you know, if you haven't been to the Mayflower Arts Center, you should get off your butt and go. Check it out, because it's really cool. They're constantly showing fun stuff. And not just special events like that, but also classic movies, all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an awesome experience. And you need to support your local theater as hard as you can, because you don't know what you got till it's gone. So yep. get your butts out there and get some spookies. It's it's hot as hell outside. Get some chills. <laughs> so are you saying that there'll be other people from the movie here besides you? I can't guarantee who, but there will be for sure. Okay, definitely will be at least a few others. So there's there's the teaser that oh yeah, there'll be more people than you to talk to. <laughs> well, you know, but I'm the one that matters. <laughs> well, well, yeah. Well, you know. But, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, come out and, and also, you know, not only support, you get to support a local th- cinema, you get to support a local filmmaker. It's it's totally win-win. I mean, there's no losing there. You get to see a movie. I mean, it, that's the most amazing thing is when I realize, like, I'm trying to get people to go see a movie, the thing that I'm, like, trying to do every single day. <laughs> yes. And what a horrible thing to, to have people try to do is go see a movie. That, that, in our world. <laughs> you know, when uh, people contact me asking how they can get involved in movies... You know, they, they have no experience. They want to, like, uh, crew or they want to act or whatever. I always tell them, like, well, here's the next screening. Come to the screening and see what we're all about and also, you know, say hi. And, you know, become a, a face that I know rather than a face on the internet. And it's so funny that people are like, oh, I don't, I don't know if I could do that. It's like, well, you have two weeks notice to just go see a movie. Like, I'm literally asking you to just go watch a movie. And like, <laughs> oh, it's hard for me to find the time. And I'm like, well, you know, if you can't make the time to watch a movie, I don't think you can make the time to make one. So I think I saved us both a ton of time. <laughs> I think we figured out where your priorities are. Yeah, yeah. So, but no, I, I do hope to see a lot of, uh, of new people. Um, I've been uh, I've been actively beginning to flyer Troy specifically because I, I I did notice in the few screens I went to uh, you know some some Troy people uh, seem to appreciate what's going on at the Mayflower so I'm hoping maybe they'll get to uh, be exposed for the first time 
to some local cinema. You have more questions for him, Dustin? No. You guys got it all covered? Mm-hmm. I had one more comment on here. Go for it. And you talked about your secret project. Oh, God, yeah. We'll let you know that when you're ready to talk about your secret project, you're welcome to come back. I would love to. we can to. talk about it on here, and you can talk about it when you're ready to talk about it. As you, will, you won't be able to escape me talking about it when it comes to fruition, so we'll definitely talk about it. I'd love that. What movie you're looking for, are you looking forward to coming out soon? Uh, I'm really excited about seeing It Chapter 2 because uh, I'm nervous because I liked it so much. I'm, I'm worried how can you how can you follow it you know mm-hmm. so i'm really stoked on that and that's probably the thing i'm most looking forward to it's weird when you go to the movies so much i go at least once a week to the cinema i don't look forward to movies the way i used to because i just know i'm gonna see everything to some extent so but that one's one that's definitely like i'm thinking about how excited i am to see what they do and i really hope it's boss I really hope it kicks butt. <laughs> Do you have a tough time as a... I, I, I can't even say writer-producer because you're doing the whole cycle of, of everything from thinking to to putting it out there. Of And I've talked to Dustin about this. Can you turn your brain off and just enjoy a movie or do you start dissecting it and watching it from a director point of, point of view or DP point of view? or? Um, eventually, I can shut that off. It's always hard at the beginning. And the worst is to try and watch a movie after I was just like just did a day on set that's the worst because then I am thinking about like where's that light I, I that's a that's the big struggle is, is thinking where's that light but usually I can snap myself out of it there was a quote I always used to like where it was like um where it was like I love movies I love movies so much but then I started making movies so now I can't do that anymore <laughs> you know? it's not quite that bad but I do have to like actively go shut up and watch the movie so and and often I have to do that to myself <laughs> So let folks know how they can get in touch with you or follow sure. you or any of that good stuff. Sure. Well, I'm on pretty much all the social media. So you can find me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. My name is extremely unusual. So uh, it will be in the in the description of the the written description of the podcast. You yeah. can see the proper spelling. So if you copy and paste Henrik Kuto into any of the social medias, you'll find me right away. I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. Also, if you same deal because my name is so unusual, if you plop that into Amazon, you'll find a lot of my work immediately. They can also check out henflix.com. That's my personal web store where I sell a lot of my films. H-E-N-F-L-I-X.com. A lot of cool Blu-rays and DVD combos and collector's editions are available on there. If you like supporting uh, independent film, that's a huge way to support because the money goes directly to me, which goes directly into everything we're doing. Feel free, you know, I welcome people to write me. The thing I love to talk about most is movies, and I'm only moderately annoyed by some of the people that reach out to me at random, so why not? <laughs> Don't be one of those people. <laughs> or do. You know what? I'm not going to steal your shine. Yeah. <laughs> If you have any comments or questions about this podcast, you can email us at podcast at persiniafilmsociety.org. And we are on Facebook as well as Persinia Film Society. And Instagram and Twitter, we are at Persinia Film. Again, thank you, Henrik, for being here. My pleasure. And looking forward to seeing more of your stuff in the future. Anything else? I'm dead. We're good. You good? Awesome. I'm great. Thank you guys so much. (laughs)